0: Turn to Exodus chapter 34, starting at verse 29, Exodus 34 starting at verse 29 and reading to the end of the chapter. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, and as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to, him, to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. This is the word of the Lord. So a couple weeks ago, um, we worshiped at Camp Manitoba, and the purpose of our worshiping there was to kind of be a presence as a church to uh, past summer staff folks as past summer counselors were coming back for a reunion. And in that time, uh, if you had taken a moment or came early enough, you noticed that there were tables out kind of around the front, and in the, on those tables were scores and scores of pictures. Um, and honestly, they were kind of scary pictures. If, if, you looked, if I looked back and looked over um, the photo albums and all the pictures, it was kind of a scary scary time. Brent, show, show one. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. You see the six-pack uh, and that hot chick next to me? That was before we knew God was going to be doing anything in our lives. In fact, we had a love-hate relationship at that time. But we were at the pool together at Camp Manitoba. And But there were more. Next, next picture. Take it off that one. Thank you. <laughs> Pictures do something, right? I know in our family, as you go up to the top stairs, we have uh, kind of a, a board, two boards, and it shows our kids progressing each year. And it shows, you know, Isaac being this fat, chubby, really still cute, fat, chubby little kid. And it progresses all the way to his current time. And the same is with grace. You get these progressions into these pictures. And you, as a parent, you know, I've got an app on my phone. It's called Time Hop. And every day, if I posted a picture, I can look back and look at, oh, you remember seven years ago when this happened? And each time, it's a status update or it's a picture. And it's constant reminders of where I was and what was going on in my life. And these, these pictures and these statuses are, are there to tell a story. It's to tell a story. And we all have stories, but these help us record what's going on in history. One of the reasons why for me, Exodus is a thrilling book to study is because of its foundational role in the entire Bible. In many respects, the book of Exodus is a lot like those pictures that tell a story. There are some not-so-cute moments, the junior high years or the fat baby years, where you have more roles than roles should be ever on a human body. But if you look closely you can see glimpses of what is to come. There are concepts, there are themes, there are images that are introduced in this book that help us to understand the overall message of the Bible, the the life of Jesus Christ, and ultimately the gospel. For example... Exodus, as we have learned, introduces many very important concepts. It it introduced us to the burning bush, the the presence of God. It introduced us to the names of God. It introduces us to the Passover lamb and what that's going to ultimately ultimately mean. It introduced us to the God's standards for holiness in the Ten Commandments that reflect His character. It introduced to us the concept of slavery and sin. But it also, very importantly, introduced us to the very important idea and reality of redemption. Part of the joy of studying this, this book is to be able to make the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament to trace the plan and the message of God throughout biblical history. And I would suspect that it's true for many of you that you had no idea how important this book is to the overall flow and message of the entire Bible. How each week we can see the gospel more beautifully. Over the past year, I've had people just comment to me, how helpful and worshipful the book of Exodus has been for their own personal life in understanding what God is really doing. And when you see the gospel in its elementary and foundational form, it makes you love the end product even more. So, in our text this morning, we see it's all about the glory of God and the effect. On Moses, And the great thing about this text is the fact that the Apostle Paul uses and references this very text, this very instant, this moment in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 to make a very important point about the glory of God in us through the gospel. And so this is one of those instances where you can kind of, it's kind of a... Um, a picture album shown all at one time of what God is up to. It is meaningful, it is marvelous, and it is absolutely worshipful. So we're going to trace the glory of God from Moses to the gospel to you. And we're going to see how the glory of God shown through Moses and through the work of Jesus Christ and how it is to shine through everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. So get ready. Here we go. Last week we saw how God is a God of second chances. After this colossal failure of the children of Israel uh, out in the desert, after worshiping this golden calf... Moses returned to Mount Sinai, and God renewed his his covenant again. Nothing changed about his covenant. In fact, it was the exact same thing that he reissued, and it showed us that he is a God of second chances. Verse 29 tells us, though, that Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, and the first two uh, tablets were broken. Broken by Moses at the sight of the the idolatry and the immorality. And now there were two brand new tablets symbolizing a second chance. But there was something different about Moses this time that had not happened the first time. And Moses was totally unaware of it. When he came down from the mountain the second time, his face was illuminated. Moses did not even know that his skin shone because he had been talking with God. Moses had no clue. He was caught up in this moment with God and he didn't even realize that there was something about his whole countenance, countenance, his appearance, that it shone with the very glory of God. There was a new development and it was actually a very significant moment. Moses' face was glowing and he reflected the afterglow of God's glory. It had, he had been exposed to the absolutely powerful and beautiful presence of God. And his face showed it. I, I, this isn't in my, my script right now. But I want you to think about what does this even mean right now for you as you hear it. As you have been in the very presence of God. There is something that should be happening, right? A very glowing afterglow. I have been in the presence of the Lord. So there was something emanating from Moses' presence. The, the Hebrew literally says, the skin of his face sent out horns. So... Um, and early translations of the Bible in Latin interpreted this phrase to mean that Moses literally had horns. And so Michelangelo and many other medieval and Renaissance uh, uh, artists picked up on this idea. And if you look at old historical pictures of Moses, you will see that he is a man who kind of has horns coming off of his head. This kind of proves why you really need to be studying scripture clearly. He was not a man with horns, but there was a a glowing eminence that was coming out from him. So the meaning of this is really quite simple, and there's something very different about Moses' face. His, His face was reflecting the glory of God, and it was absolutely clear to the people that he had been with God. Moses bore an imprint on his face with the glory of God. Moses' countenance even affected the people of Israel. According to verse 30, they were terrified to even come near him. There was something other about him. The glory of God was emanating from his face and, and the people had a cause to be afraid. And this is a frequent theme in the Bible when it comes to the display of God's holiness. God's people and God's presence, when, when people come into God's presence, there it creates fear in the hearts of sinful people. There's something about this powerful otherworldliness, purity and mystery of God's glory that creates a great amount of caution. The prophet Isaiah experienced this when he, he encountered the presence of God in the temple and he heard, holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And Isaiah's reaction in that moment when he heard this was, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts. So there's even Isaiah, a biblical author, was writing, woe is me. Stand back. I have, I'm experiencing God's glory. And I am a man of unclean lips and unclean hearts. God, don't strike me dead. The people were not out of the line for their response. In fact, their reaction is part of God's design in this moment. Moses is going to be delivering God's word to his people. And the glory of God on his face serves to validate the message. It's a validation. It's a stamp saying, I have been with God. Listen to verses 31 and 32. But Moses called to to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. afterward all the people of Israel came near. And what did he do? He commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. But then something interesting happens. Verse 33 tells us that Moses put a veil on his face after he finished speaking with them. What's more, in verses 34 and 35, it tells us that this practice continued even beyond Sinai. It was not a one-time thing, but it was a continual thing. In the future, there were other moments where Moses would meet with God, and he emerged from those meetings, and his face would be revealed. Then Moses would put a veil back on his face. So what is the deal with this veil? First, the veil was not to protect Moses. It was to comfort the people. It seemed that the display of God in Moses' face was a bit frightening to the people. Doug Stewart, in his commentary on Exodus, says the following about the reason for the veil. He says this, Therefore, the veil he donned was undoubtedly for the people's sake, not because his unveiled face would physically harm them, but because it apparently scared them so much psychologically that they found it hard to be near him. The people presumably were distracted and unnerved by whatever came from Moses' face. So Moses was trying to comfort the people. Secondly, it's important to not become overly focused on the veil because it is not the main Point of this passage. The veil is hiding or covering the real point, the glory of God. The point of this passage is to confirm Moses' leadership, to affirm God's presence, to demonstrate God's supremacy, and to motivate the people for obedience. Can you imagine what that would be like? Could you imagine what it would be like this morning? If, you know, I came out of the back room meeting with God in this back little office and all of a sudden there was like this glowing thing going on with me but no one else. It would serve to say, hey, Paul has just met with God. And God is supreme and we need to be called towards obedience. It is a holy moment. Moses could have just simply delivered God's word to the people without any physical illumination, but the divine glow of his face gave the message new meaning and new depth. In other words, the glory of God in the face of Moses proved that everything that he said was real. The words coming from Moses' mouth were not just his words. They were God's words. The commands were God's commands. And the glory of God in the face of Moses gave the people evidence that they were hearing something from God. So the glory of God in Moses' face connected their lives to the very life of God himself. We are hearing from God through the mouth of Moses. But there's more. The glory of God in the gospel. As I said earlier, this story and its lessons are used by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament when talking about the gospel. There's a remarkable and insightful connection in uh, 2 Corinthians 3. 7 through 17, and it connects the glory of God to the gospel. By way of background, 2 Corinthians is, uh, Paul wrote a letter to this church, and this church, there was a lot of pain, a lot of disconnect, there was uh, people questioning Paul's validity as an apostle, should we... What, what is wrong with him? He's a small man, not of much stature, and he's not like the other apostles, the super apostles. And so his message, the detractors were saying, listen, he you suffer way too much. There's something wrong with that. And they believed that a spirit-filled apostle of the resurrected Christ would be victorious. There'd be something really powerful about his presence. So the first three chapters of 2 Corinthians are a defense of the legitimacy of his ministry to the church in Corinth. Paul is defending himself. And chapter 3 is the pinnacle of his argument. As he posits that the legitimacy of his ministry comes from the glory of the gospel mediated by the Spirit. Like Moses... Paul's authority was being challenged. And he points to the greater glory of the gospel, a glory greater than the glory shown in Moses' face. This is clearly stated in 2 Corinthians 3 7 through 9. Listen to this. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such Glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glory? For if there was a ministry, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness, must far exceed its glory. So Paul is using the glory expressed in uh, Exodus thirty-four as the basis for talking about the glory of the new covenant and the ministry of the Spirit. He he identifies that there was glory in this ministry of condemnation, which refers to the display of God's character in giving out the law. And the Ten Commandments and all the derivative laws of the Old Testament reflect the very character of God. This is who I am. So this is who you must be. So there was glory in the book of the book of Exodus. But there is even greater glory in the New Covenant, the New Testament, and the work of Jesus Christ. How so? Paul calls it the ministry of righteousness. And he highlights the fact that the law could never produce true righteousness. The rules, the regulations, the restrictions were all designed to send a very strong message or glory about God's righteousness and His holiness. There is none of us who have ever kept the Ten Commandments. The message came through loud and clear that no one, no one could keep the law. It revealed the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of people. That is the way of the glory of God, why the glory of God in Moses was so frightening. The people were scared. It was a constant reminder to the people that God was not like them at all. There was something about his presence, his holiness, his purity. They communicated, we are not like him. He is other. So Jesus Christ, what did Jesus Christ do? Jesus Christ changed that all. He ushered in a new and a better day. He inaugurated the coming of the glory of God in the gospel. Jesus Christ came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross so that the righteous requirements of the law could be fulfilled in Him. He became the sacrifice to satisfy the just demands of God's holiness so that God could forgive undeserving sinners. And for those who have received Christ's death, they are born again. We're given new hearts. We are declared in that moment as righteous. Not a righteousness of our own, but an imputed righteousness, a righteousness from another. Christ's righteousness. And we are, at that moment, we are filled with the Spirit and given a new heart and set on a path of freedom. Romans 8, 1 through 4 just connects all of this. It says this, there is therefore now, how much condemnation? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is the gospel. This is the new covenant. This is the new era of redemption that Exodus was ultimately pointing forward to. The time when the law of God will not just come down from a mountain and from a man named Moses, it's pointing to the law of God being written on the hearts of God's people by the Spirit. In other words, obedience is no longer something that you must do, but it is something that you desire to do. And I think many of you can understand that. There was a time where you just desired to do everything according to your flesh, right? I didn't care. I just want to do this. I want to have this. I want to act this way. I'm going to work it out sexually, financially, emotionally, all these kind of different ways. But when God gave you a new heart, something really changed, didn't it? You have, all of a sudden, those things broke you, and you desired a new holiness, a new way of living. You wanted not to do it because you have to, but because it is a worshipful expression of what God has done in you. You desire obedience, Because a new heart has been given to you. Does that mean that we don't struggle anymore? Oh, heavens no. We still struggle. But thank God for his spirit residing within us to help us. The helper. So this transformation happens from the inside out, right? But the work of Jesus is more glorious than the old covenant which Moses brought. I want you to notice that the gospel has it has a glory that surpasses, a brightness that surpasses the old. It is permanent. This new covenant is permanent. It creates a deep assurance. It is inaugurated by who? Jesus Christ. And it involves the Spirit and the Spirit's indwelling. And ultimately, friends, it brings Freedom and life. Listen, listen to Second Corinthians ten through 7, 2 Corinthians three, ten through seventeen. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what had been for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will it, will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when, the, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is what? Removed. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom. So the old covenant, the law, and Moses' message had glory connected to that. Hear that. There's something glorious about the law and the message there. The law was good. It was right. It was glorious. It revealed what God is like and what people are like. It's glorious. The law displayed the glory of God, but that is not, thank God, the whole story. In fact, Paul presses the veil metaphor even further, referring to not something that hides God's glory to, from sinful people, but to say that the people have a spiritual veil between themselves and God. Unbelievers have a spiritual veil between themselves and God. Verses 15 says it very clearly. When Moses read, when Moses is read, in other words, those laws and that, that commandment is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But verse 16 gives a solution. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So what does it mean? What does this mean? It means that when a person turns to Christ and looks to him for forgiveness, he or she is born again and sees the kingdom of God. It is what it means. It means that when a person turns to Christ, he has spiritual eyesight, spiritual eyesight to see the glory of God. Paul reiterates this so well in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6 he says for god who said let light shine out from of the darkness has shown has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of god in the face of jesus christ let me read that again for god who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul is not referring to seeing something actually physically right now, but he is referring to a supernatural moment when everything changes, everything. When a person is regenerated or or born again, a miracle happens in, in the heart, the soul, in the very essence of that person. We become to behold the glory of God in the good news of Jesus Christ that he has died for my sins. We behold the beauty of God's glory in the gospel when we are rescued from slavery. Our ability to... We behold the glory of God in the gospel when we recognize that we have an inability to keep God's law and our total impotence to do anything about it on our own. We behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ when we are converted and come to Christ. We behold the glory of God when we are born again. Paul says that this glory in the gospel was what the glory of Moses in Exodus 34 is all about. There is a greater glory in the gospel. It produces hope, doesn't it? The glory that brings freedom, that kind of a glory... Is replaced, has replaced fear in our lives. But Paul is not finished. The glory of God in you. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is one of my favorite verses because it provides just this beautiful vision and hope because of its practicality. Paul takes the idea of glory from Exodus 34 and he magnifies it through the gospel and then he makes it very personal and he makes it very practical. Verse 18 sings. Sings with the beauty of God. And we, with what kind of faces? Unveiled faces. We with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So what, does, what is this all saying about God's glory in your life? First, it says this. First, it says it is for everyone. The glory of God in your life is for everyone. Paul celebrates the glory of God in every follower of Jesus Christ. He puts us in the position of Moses in Exodus 34. Paul asserts that every Christian, all of us, we all, not just in an elite group, is able to approach and experience the glory of the Lord. Every one of us, you are able to experience the glory of the Lord. And because of the new birth, every believer, every believer in Jesus Christ is able to behold the glory of God in the gospel. No longer is it limited to a special class of people. No longer is it just limited to priests or leaders. No longer is it limited to just Moses. But every one of you can behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So know that, hear that. The glory of God is available. It is for you. But secondly, beholding is contemplating Jesus. What does it mean to behold the glory of God? That's kind of like a Christianese term, right? Or just a biblical thing that we kind of go, oh, what does it mean to behold? The New American Standard Bible says, beholding as in a mirror. And the NIV says, contemplate God's, the Lord's glory. The reason that the Translators render "behold" this way is because they are trying to get to get at the point that no one actually beholds God fully in this lifetime, but we see His image in the person of Jesus Christ. And the NSB AB, uh, NASB, New American Standard Bible, indicates that the image is not the full display of God's glory. It is not just a face-to-face image that we see, the glory uh, that Moses longed to see. It is the image like a reflection. So when we behold, we are looking into almost a mirror and looking and just saying, look at Christ. And when I look at Christ, I can even see Christ in me. I behold it, I I contemplate it, I mediate it, meditate on it, I enjoy it, I think about it, I'm looking at it as you look deeply into a mirror. Some of you know exactly, we got some vanity issues, you know. We look in the mirror and we spend hours and hours in front of a mirror looking at ourselves. But if we could behold the glory of God by looking at it and seeing Christ and then Christ in me, it is a powerful thing that constantly is transforming our lives from one degree of glory to another. But here's another thing. The third thing is that transformation is ultimately the effect. The point of this is to get what comes next in the text. Namely, that as Moses was changed by the glory of the Lord, how was he changed? His whole face, his whole countenance, it was was totally changed by being in the presence of God. It is true that believers in Jesus Christ are able to be transformed as well. You are going to be changed. As we behold the glory of God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, as we meditate and enjoy and gaze upon the beauty of Jesus Christ, we are transformed. We are changed. The Greek word here is the same word that we use for the word metamorphosis. Is Abby here? You know, she's been posting on Facebook this metamorphosis, this change from a, a worm, a caterpillar, to a beautiful butterfly. And we, transformation from a worm to a butterfly is quite a transformation. But how much more are we transformed? It means that there is a radical change of form, of nature. In beholding Christ, meditating on Christ, gazing on Christ, we are becoming like Christ. Contemplating on Him leads to change in us. But here's the fourth thing, and this is good news, that it's incremental, because some of us would like it to happen right now. I want it all to be done right now. I believe in Jesus Christ. I want it to be done. I want to have my old nature totally done, and all my sin issues, and all my struggles, and all my lusts, and all my desires. I want them all to be done. That was my old life. I want it to be done, but it is incremental. The glory that Paul had in mind for our lives is not just this ethereal or theoretical glory. The biblical vision of this glory is practical. It is daily and it is incremental. It is slowly, step-by-step growing. The text says from one degree of glory to another. The transformation is not instantaneous. The full and final transformation is what we ultimately long for. That's why even in our prayers, as we look at this broken world, we say, come, Lord Jesus, won't you come? We want to experience that full and beautiful final glory of God in the world, in our lives. Lord, this is broken, and our hearts are longing for perfection. God, won't you come again? This is why we long for Jesus to return. It's why we long for this final step of salvation, which is called glorification. We're longing for that day when all things are right. All things are beautiful and made right. So it's incremental. But this is also very hopeful when there are times when you might look at your life and you see change, and you see growth, but you also see the depth and the breadth of things in your life that still need to change. You have moments where it's like, oh, Lord. This is, I look back, and I look at the things that I used to do, and the, all that junk, and Lord, you have brought me here, and it is a beautiful and powerful thing. But it's also in that moment where you realize, I have a long ways to go. And this is how God works. There is no such thing as finished followers. Period. if you think you've arrived, you have deceived yourself. If you think you are better than another person, you have deceived yourself. You're not gazing deeply into the gospel, which reminds you of the glory of God in Jesus Christ, in the face of Jesus Christ, but also how far you have to go because you are being conformed, to be conformed into the image of Christ. So friends, God is still working on each and every one of us. We are far from perfect, far from perfect. So don't ever give up. Don't ever stop. Don't ever quit on beholding, gazing into Christ, realizing the power and the hope of the gospel, but also your need to be conformed ever incrementally. And here's the ultimate goal, number five. The goal is to look like Jesus. The glorious transformation makes us look more and more and more and more and more like Christ. Have you ever sat down with one of those old saints who have been followers of Jesus Christ their entire life and you just listen to them and there is something about them that just emanates? Wow, I have had a holy moment because they have so walked with Christ. Well, the reality is we are being transformed into the same image. God is making us to look like his son. We don't become his son. We look more and more and more like his son. And this is the goal and the drive for everything for those who follow after Jesus. That's, that's the goal of your life. Your goal for your life is not to have a perfect marriage, to have perfect children, to have a great 401, 403, whatever it is. It's not for great retirement. It's not to have a beautiful home and a great car. That's not the purpose of your life. The purpose of a follower of Jesus Christ is to become more like Jesus. And from that become some very beautiful things. Very beautiful. Notice how Paul connects all this in Colossians chapter 1. To them God chose to make known how great Among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. If you've got children or you've grown up, which all of us have, you know there is a maturation process, right? So the goal is ultimately to look like Christ, who's the head of our church, our brother, to look more like Him. But how does this all end? It ends, God does this by His Spirit it concludes with a reminder that God is the one who is doing this work. And how is he doing it? He is doing it by the Spirit. In other words, there is something greater at work in you than you. Keep that in mind when when you struggle in your flesh and wanting to put to death this. You are probably doing it by your own strength. Well, the reality is, you're going to get them to the point where you say, This sucks. Because I can't change this. And you're right. You can't. The reality is, the most powerful thing is that Christ is working in you through His Spirit. God regenerates you, He changes you, He empowers you, He fills you, and He keeps you all the way to the very end. Are you involved? Are you active? Absolutely. You can quench the Spirit. You can grieve the Spirit. And you can hinder what God wants to do in your life. But hear this. In the end, what happens in you is an absolute miracle. It's a miracle. In seeing the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, you are really and truly changed. He grabs a hold of your heart of stone, filled with lust, filled with, you fill in your own blank, stubbornness. Hatred, malice, sexual immorality. He takes that heart and he says, I'm taking that heart of stone and I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh. It's a different kind of heart. So I'm going to implore you today to not wait another minute. Not wait another minute Not another day to give your heart and your life to Christ. The reality is that God may be calling you today to turn from your sins and to put your faith in Jesus Christ. So I'm inviting you to be born again, to be changed so deeply, so profoundly, and so practically that it can be nothing but a miracle of God. Respond today to this good news that it's impossible for you to change apart from God saying, trust me. Put your whole life, everything in me, and I will change you. Trust me. For those of you who have been born again, keep beholding. Keep transforming and changing as the Spirit is working deeply within you. Keep walking in the Spirit. Let me, like Paul, from 2 2 Thessalonians 2, encourage you and charge you, encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. As an encouragement and a charge. Walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you, calls you, because he's calling you at this morning, who calls you to his own kingdom and glory. Amen? Let's pray.